0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Adam Schoenfeldt, VP of Strategy at Drift and GM of Drift Video. In this episode, we talked about how a customer-centric approach helped him build and scale two successful companies, why he talks to his customers every single day, and why everyone at Drift has chat duty. We also discussed the importance of churn and retention when a company is being acquired, and how Adam views churn and retention now as a VP of Strategy at Drift versus previous views as CEO of his own company. And here's today's episode. Hey, Adam. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, uh, Adam is the VP of Strategy at Drift and GM of Drift Video. Drift is the world's number one conversational marketing platform used by over 50,000 businesses to create pipeline and drive revenue. Adam joined Drift after Drift acquired a startup he founded called Siftrock, a tool to help B2B marketers manage email replies at scale. And prior to Drift and Siftrock, Adam was the CEO and co-founder of Simply Measured, a leader in social media analytics, trusted by over 50% of the global 100 brands that was also later acquired by Sprout Social. Uh, So my first question for you, Adam, is having built and scaled two companies now that were acquired, um, what do you think was the common denominator in their success?
1: Wow, good question. Focus on the customer is probably the uh, common denominator on on all the the ups, in the many ups and downs that came from those businesses. Uh, But when we really understood our customers' problems and the team was really focused on that, I think those were the most successful times and uh, everything else kind of fell from that.
0: I want to dive into that because I think obviously it's like something that uh, Drift preachers inside and out is like really understanding the person get closest to the customer wins. And um, it definitely is like the central theme that keeps on coming up on the show. But I don't think you've ever really gone deep into what that means and really understanding the customer. So maybe you want to talk us through that a little bit, sort of. Uh, maybe we could start either at Simply Measured or at Sift Rock and. What did your process look like as a team to really truly understand the customer and uh, how religious were you with that process and keeping up to date?
1: Yeah, I can go back in my history a little bit too of of some of the uh, war wounds I have on this one because I founded my first company way back in 2008. Um, I was really young. I'd been working in a management consulting firm as an analyst and I wrongly thought I was really smart and could start a company. Uh, because I had read TechCrunch and I knew how to make PowerPoint decks. And so my ability to make PowerPoint decks meant I could raise a little bit of angel money, but the company was a complete uh, failure. And the fundamental failure I I kind of discovered after looking back on that experience was that we just didn't even think from the customer point of view. We thought from our own goals to be featured in TechCrunch and be this successful startup. And Uh, I I laugh at myself thinking how young and naive I was then. I'm sure in 10 more years, I'll look back on me now and think the same exact thing, because that's what always happens. But the fundamental thing there was we just didn't even know who our customer was or focus on the customer or even understand how to talk to customers. So when I came in uh, with my co-founders at Simply Measured, and then later at siftrock I, I brought that principle with me and knew that from day one, I had to really figure out, you know, who are we trying to serve? What are their problems? What are we trying to solve for them? How are we going to be uh, unique in solving those problems? And really being objective about um, the answers to those questions and really having a lot of rigor about answering those questions. And uh, joining Drift, I've seen that come come through again, and that the whole philosophy of the company is built on top of our first principle, which is put the customer at the center of everything you do. And I think it's just paramount. It's got to be a principle. It's got to be a foundation for for building any business. Probably to most of your listeners, it sounds obvious, but I think, uh, at least for me, when I was first getting started, I didn't understand that at all. So it was a muscle that I had to build uh, going through a few startups. Yeah, definitely. It is
0: one of those things. I think at the surface, it seems obvious and uh, we talk about it. We preach it all the time, but actually living it, I think, is another thing. Um, and really, like, I, I'm interested sort of what your process was going into these next two companies, like having known that you you didn't put the customer at the center, what did you do in the early days with these companies to try and understand your customer, their problems? Was there any specific framework you followed to try and understand them better? And uh, was it in the form of uh, customer interviews? Like, did that scale over time? Like, How did you make sure that you kept uh, a, a, like understanding and hearing the voice of your customer throughout the
1: journey? Yeah, great question. So I can speak to Siftrock because it's fresh in my mind. Uh, I joined there. There was a technical co founder, a guy named Chris Hundley, who had started the company, great technologist, great entrepreneur. And he was at the point where he wanted a kind of quote business co founder to come on. And so I came in and brought in a a sales rep that I'd worked with before. And at that point, like from that point, we just started meeting with customers and talking to them. I mean, it, it sounds simple, all of this, but my philosophy is always literally just talk to the customers every day. If I do that, then the questions I ask and the way I interview them and the things I look at and what I focus on it, that can all change. But just building that muscle of like, every day, we're going to sit down, we're going to get them on the phone, we're going to ask them about, you know, how they're using the product, what their problems are, what's the context, what's their life like. Um, So I'm, I guess I'm big on the qualitative uh, kind of research, like understanding what they're doing. And where I fit into their universe. And that, that was square one for me, like when I came in at Siftrock. And then we, you know, we evolved from that to asking more specific questions. But um, I was on every sales call uh, in the very early days. Uh, I read every support email. And then when we hired our first customer success manager, I was reviewing pretty much every email exchange she had for about a month or two. So I, I'm big on like getting really into the sausage making of like every interaction, every conversation, and then just trying to soak all that up.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's super important. I think actually I've been guilty of this in the past in a previous company. I founded as well was starting out like you, all you get, you want to learn from the customer. You go out, you try and speak to them as much as possible, try and understand their problems. And then, over time you slowly start as a founder becoming detached from the customer and others start filling those uh voids. And uh I know like this for me this was I'm very, very guilty of it. And I looking back now, I realize sort of like you get to a point where you think you know enough about the customer and you start to influence yourself with biases of what the market is looking for and who your customer really is. Like how have you seen this in your time sort of evolving? Like, have you been aware of the biases that you create within yourself? And how do you ensure, though, as the company scales, like, and it becomes a little bit more difficult to have these one-on-one conversations, that you still have got a good process to really be understanding your customers as the company is growing, the market's evolving, and your target customer changes?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I'm I'm great at... Uh... <laughs> at finding those biases and and removing them. It's, it's so hard, right? It's a constant battle. Um, I think that for me personally, um, it, it becomes a problem when I just stop the, the stop doing the work, stop the habit of call downs and listening to recordings and going on ride alongs and reaching out to people in my network, right? If it's, if it's part of my day, and I'm reminding myself who the boss is, right, which is the customer, and I'm having some interaction, then I usually don't get too far off field. Where I feel I get off field is when I'm just going through the motions of meetings and one-on-ones and spreadsheets and internal demands that take me off of the habit and the the practice of really just engaging with my true boss. And uh, when I'm doing that, I feel like I then I, I... I, I can see when, when I'm drifting away from the truth. Um, if I'm not doing that, then I, it's just so easy to lose sight. And it's so easy to have either um, outdated perspective or, or flawed perspectives or basically fill in holes that you know, aren't based on facts and reality.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's obviously what you're saying is there's no magic formula. It's just really putting in the work and working on that muscle. Uh, yeah, I was, I was hoping it, you were going to share
1: No, no, it's one of those non-silver bullet uh, yeah. type deals.
0: But it, um, it's one of those things that's so hard to do, I think, and but yet so important, so valuable uh, as well. And sometimes it's just good to be reminded that it's like even like the simple things that's how important they can be and how you should try really to build that habit.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's little things that I try to do, like anytime I get into a exchange with somebody on LinkedIn or an email that's a customer, you know, I'll always just try to drop in a question, right? Just even if it's, it's not really the primary intent of our exchange, I always just be like, you know, how's it working out for you with the product? Or is there something that we could be doing better? Um, I, tr- I we, have a pr- we have a thing at Drift where everybody um, goes on the chat and does chat duty, which is a great, uh, great little um, yeah. you know, system you can implement company-wide. So everybody gets to kind of have those real-time conversations with people coming to the website, which, which tells you a lot. And when you have to go you know, troubleshoot a problem or help answer somebody's questions, that really uh, makes you feel it. Uh, and then another thing we do is we record all of our sales calls uh, using Gong. And I found that uh, it's not a silver bullet, but it's certainly a shortcut because uh, then you can, you know, build a habit of listening and uh, you cut out a lot of steps on scheduling and, and uh, the, the normal administrative overhead it takes.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure the, listening to those calls will be a lot more interesting and valuable to you than listening to an episode of of FM.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I just listened to one that was pretty good. So you got to, you got to mix it up. We got to bring in the books and the podcasts and, and get that high level perspective. But yeah, the, the customer calls, if I could only listen to one thing, that's probably what I would listen to. be it.
0: Yeah. I think that's an excellent uh, format to have, to be able to at your exposure to uh, listen to a call anytime. Cool. So uh, the thing I had in mind as well, I wanted to chat about today, and I mentioned like the first question sort of uh, was having two companies acquired, and you you saw like the common denominator there really getting close to the customer. But the next thing I wanted to talk through a little bit is in the context of these acquisitions and uh, talking about churn and retention now, um, what did the process look like? Uh, and maybe you can tell me if it was the same for both or a different cases for both when it came to sort of the point when uh, your companies were being acquired and uh, how did these play out? Like how important was churn and retention as well when uh, the companies acquiring you were evaluating the performance of the company? And maybe we can just start there and elaborate. Uh.
1: Yeah, well, I can speak to Cifdrock, uh, because that's probably the best basis for this conversation. Um, we were bootstrapping the company. Uh, so retention was paramount for us because we just knew that the economics um, of bootstrapping would only work if we could retain our customers and, and you know, basically get into a negative churn situation um, because that's really the road to capital efficiency, I think, goes through retention, um, especially with the motion that we had because we had a sales-led motion at a, a relatively low ACV. Um, so then really the exercise was like, how do we retain that, that revenue forever? Cause we're probably not going to have like the most efficient, uh, acquisition machine <laughs> in the universe. So, um, once we landed, we want to make sure that we stuck and we want to make sure that we had a chance to expand over the life of, of our customers. And so I think it was, it was critical in how we built the business. And then it definitely came up in the acquisition process, right? What are the retention metrics? What, what does that look like? Um, and the exec team at Drift definitely dug in on that because with, with Siftrock, they were buying, you know, a team, a technology, and a business. So the, the business that was being purchased was you know very dependent on like how much value are these customers getting and and how well are they being retained? So I think that was really the crux of the whole analysis of like, does this business have value?
0: And, during this evaluation process like who was doing the evaluation like what metrics were asked for and who were you speaking
1: to on a regular basis from drift yeah it was the cfo the ceo and the cto mostly um were kind of doing this uh the C- the conversation started with david the ceo and then um olias the cto kind of led the the deal process from the drift side. And then the CFO was involved to look at the financials and look at the metrics and go a level deeper into uh, churn and, and what was happening there.
0: And how well did you know the guys before, or was it just something that they approached you
1: with? I had been had a very um, light level of interaction with David, the CEO over about a year. Um, just kind of messaging back and forth, exchanging emails And, uh, after they raised around with Sequoia, we had, uh, we had connected over the phone and he said, Hey, do you want to have a deeper conversation about, you know, something strategic? And we flew out for a day and spent a day and, and things kind of clicked really quickly. So it was about a year of, of a relationship. Um, we had also been a customer of Drifts and kind of a fan. And so we knew a few people there. Um, but there was no kind of talk of, of M&A until um, pretty close to when the deal happened.
0: Interesting. And then, uh, so when you joined, did you join as the VP of strategy? Like what was, uh, what did it look like? So uh, going from uh, one of the, the CEO founder of uh, Siftrock being acquired, like what was the, the transition, the journey into the company and how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah. You always have to find a place for these, Early stage specialist type people in a in a slightly bigger company, right? So, uh, I came in and my role was to transition the Siftrock business into the Drift business, and um, so I spent the first kind of three or four months doing that while starting to take on this this strategy role, which is which is really focused on uh, defining and communicating our product strategy across all of our product lines and all of our use cases and trying to. Um, set a unified strategy of, you know, what drift builds. And uh, so I transitioned to that role. And then I've kind of taken on newer products or newer initiatives, um, most recent with the video product. So um, I lead the team that um, that builds and takes the video product to market as well. So we have kind of a GM model on our on our newer products here. Um, And so I'm sort of I'm responsible for that almost like the CEO of, of drift video.
0: Very cool. Um, and I'm, I'm interested then in this perspective because obviously coming from one side, being a founder, uh, being like the sole responsibility for these metrics and like I said, retention being critical for you at Rock uh, with your sales led uh, model having such a, or having a low ACV. Um, how does your perception and how you view uh, churn and retention differ between the role of a CEO and now in the position of a VP of strategy? At uh, a fast-growing startup like Drift.
1: Yeah, as as CEO, it was something I thought about every day, and I probably tracked our renewals and our existing customers more than anything else. And I probably spent more of my time on that than anything else. Today, I'm I'm working in the product function, so retention is huge, right? For the product organization, it's something we think about. It's something we measure in lots and lots of different ways. But it's not, my, it's not my daily focus. It's not like the question that I'm, I'm asking myself uh, every day when I wake up uh, versus being CEO. It, it really was. I mean, the, the renewals that were up and the new customers that we were onboarding uh, was top of mind for me every single day, um, especially, like I said, because we were a bootstrap business. And I just believe that the success of our company was entirely based on serving those customers and making them really happy.
0: Yeah. So in one way, like it's the be all and end all sort of thing that this needs to work to make the company work. Whereas now, like what it sounds like a drift, it's super important, but there's obviously a lot more scale, a lot more people thinking about the problem. So it allows you to have areas of specialization um, to serve customers better, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah,
1: Yeah. totally. And I think my it is a, it was a little bit of a philosophy thing, like building Siftrock, this bootstrapped company, I mean, we we treated it a little bit like an old school uh, you know, store you'd open down on main street and just thought about service above all. Right. And I think that, you know, it's funny looking back cause my ideas aren't super crisp on this, but I think it was pretty ingrained in, in how we worked, it just, we work for the customer. We were very service oriented in everything we did. Um, we actually thought about customer success as the critical component of our marketing strategy as well, which maybe was a little bit contrarian. But the way I thought about it was, well, if, if these early cohorts can be successful, then we're going to just tell their story. That will be our marketing, and they'll tell our story. And that came true um, in many ways. Uh, I think that was our best asset was the the customers that were really happy. Um, and really pleased with our level of service became our best advocates. So, yeah, I kind of thought about it like maybe opening a restaurant or a retail shop of just service above all, and we work for the customer. Um, so that that was my mindset in Siftrock, and so I kind of car- tried to carry that as the CEO.
0: I love that, and it's actually something that uh, Julie Hogan from Drift, uh, when we interviewed her, mentioned something similar and a philosophy that uh, she introduced uh, at drift i think was looking outside the industry for inspiration in terms of how you can uh, improve the service that you deliver to your customers and if i remember correctly i think um what she did was she got a couple of people from the uh, it was either hilton group or it was one of the big hotel chains who their business is basically built on service um mm-hmm. to try and understand like what they do how they serve customers better and uh, really keep that at the core, uh, and it's interesting that you say sort of like the model looking after your customers, making sure they're happy, and then they become the ones that talk about you. Because I think ultimately, once you hit any size and scale in a SaaS business, it's going to be customers and word of mouth that's going to be the biggest driver for your business. So making sure you're looking after them and keeping them at the center is obviously it's a no-brainer in terms of yeah. the value it's going to deliver.
1: Right, and my my view on service. Um, you know, it went beyond the product and and I guess my view on retention, it went a lot beyond the product. I, I felt strongly that, um, every interaction that we had with them was going to be part of that decision to, to retain. And we, we knew at Siftrock, we were a a small solution inside of their large marketing tech stack, but we wanted to be their favorite vendor. We wanted to be the vendor that was just the easiest to work with, the most accommodating, the, the vendor that understood them the best, and the vendor that, you know, they would just say, I would work with those guys again anytime. Like we, we knew we weren't gonna be the most important piece of technology that they had in their stack. We we had a job that we wanted to do really well with the product, but it was a it's a narrow job. Uh, but what we wanted to be was the best or the the, m- m- the most enjoyable vendor to work with, and so that was kind of the bar that we held ourselves to and, and it, it started with every you know the, the interaction they'd have when we'd be prospecting to them, to the first sales call, and on forward through the the journey. Um, so that w- that was how I kind of thought about it in the sift Rock days.
0: It's interesting that you say that as well, because this is one of the things I think um, David Dominin, the CEO of Hotjar, it's one of the things he mentioned to me in the early days when I first joined Hotjar was um, when you think about sort of building a product, you want to think about where you sit on the budget uh, and when things get bad, which where do you fall in that list of tools that get thrown out first? And like you say, you might not have been the most important one, but then making sure that you were the most likable and the easiest to work with uh, certainly helps make sure that you're not on one of those ones at the bottom of the list that gets thrown out first uh, when times get tough. Um, it, it's an interesting concept to think about, I think, in the early days when you're thinking about a product itself and is trying to evaluate like how important can this be because I think ultimately uh the the more important you are to a company's stack and the more heavily embedded you are into the way the business operates and function it's just a natural uh cause that you'll have low churn and uh, you'll become part of the business but the easier you are to get rid of then you really need to start thinking about other ways in terms of uh, delighting your customers to make sure that you, you keep them and they stick with you um So uh, I'm also interested then uh, from the perspective of Drift is that uh, you're now heading up as like the GM of the video product and definitely uh, it looks like moving more and more into a multi-product strategy. Um, How do you view sort of retention in the context of this multi-product strategy? And in your position as VP of strategy, like how are you overseeing sort of the overall product strategy to ensure that it aligns with the company uh, strategy altogether. And I said strategy about five, six times in one sentence. I think that's a record.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Very strategic. Um, yeah. I think there's there's kind of two parts there. One is, you know, how do we manage the strategy, the product strategy relative to the company's strategy? Um, and the other being, how do we manage the strategy across multiple product lines and use cases? Uh, and how do we think about retention within that? Um, on the, I'll talk about the multiple products we've gone, uh, through a lot of different ways of doing this. And I think that any company that wants to be a market maker and have, uh, a big footprint within their customer is going to go through different iterations of how do we package the things we're selling, right? Is it a unified platform with use cases that sit on top? Is it a suite of different products? Is it basically separate business units that each stand on their own? And I think we're we're constantly uh, iterating on that, and it comes back to what's going to be best for the customer. So I think in our enterprise business, for instance we've we've gone more and more toward more of a unified uh, value proposition of, hey, you know, as a large enterprise, here's what you can get by working with Drift. And you might graduate into different use cases and and products over time. But we've gone to more of that approach because we found that our bigger enterprises, they they want to buy that way. And then on the lower end, right, enabling people to kind of pick and choose um, bits and pieces, like you can sign up for Drift video for free and you can start using that or you can just kind of upgrade. Um, and we have a few... W- few things that that sort of work that way. So I think right now what we've we've done is we've we've tried to just think about the different types of businesses we serve. And and now we're like evolving our strategy to try to uh, fit into those what they need and how they want to buy instead of just a one size fits all. I think initially with it, we were like, okay, it's, you know, there's these different products, and it's kind of one size fits all. I think now we've, we've evolved it to uh have the go to market and the packaging be more specific of who's who's on the other end of it and who's buying uh with regard to fitting it into the company strategy it's honestly been fairly easy at drift because we have this strong vision and uh point of view on the market and you know we've been really big on like category creation and uh leading with a strong narrative and I think at Drift, the, the whole company was founded on the idea of this shift that we saw in the world, right? The world changing from a company-centric world to a customer-centric world. And so having the really, really big headline to roll everything up to has made that way easier. So I think the answer to how we fit into the company strategy is, is the ultimate test is does it fit with the the vision uh, of why Drift exists? and as long as we can kind of draw that out and, and articulate, you know, how those pieces fit, it, it has been clear um, to people within the organization of like how to execute that. And it's made the job of setting strategy a lot easier because we have the kind of winning aspiration at the highest level.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So having that sort of clear vision overall, and obviously say like this view on the market, um, really going customer centric, It gives you an easy way to evaluate sort of different uh, products or different um, revenue streams that
1: um, align with the actual overall company vision. Um, Yeah. yeah. So I think the one other thing that I'll say on, on having the narrative is that most companies, they sort of work backwards, right? They have an idea for a product or a solution, and then they kind of retrofit a narrative to it at drift we've really been narrative first so we've had this idea and been able to articulate what's the shift we see in the market what's the category that we want to create and then it just makes it way easier to have your product strategy um fall out of that versus constantly trying to like reframe your narrative around the things that you want to build
0: yeah i think like if we think maybe about the uh fits canvas i think um Brian Belfort uh, popularized this with Reforge and it is sort of like the product market model channel. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying as well is like really starting with that market and what is that market we want to serve and then having a really good understanding of like where the market is moving and where it's going allows you then to think about the product whereas most people start with the problem and start with the product and then try to figure out the market and uh, it's like you said, it's probably a lot easier really having that strong, strong narrative to be in with that, Intuition as well, I think, comes into it in like the direction things are moving. It's not always easy to predict these things uh, and understand which uh, way the market is shifting. But having that intuition, I think, allows you as well even to get ahead of the game then, uh, and then not have to, say, retrospectively trying to fit your product to a narrative to get the team behind. And I think narrative and like company vision is often undervalued how important it is as the company scales as well. Um, and how important it is to get people to buy into it and to want to push forward through it as well becomes really, really important. Uh, Because ultimately, at the end of the day, like if the people that are working uh, with you and to build the products don't know why they're there and what they're working towards, it's when miscommunication happens, it's when bad product decisions are made, and uh, it's really, really hard um, to keep moving in a positive direction.
1: Absolutely. So if you retrofit a narrative onto a solution or an idea you have, and it's done to satisfy the VCs you're pitching or to do it because you think you need a narrative yeah. versus looking at the world and finding something that's true, uh, I think you 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 end up doing yourself a big disservice. I almost think you're better off to just not have a narrative and just be really practical and tactical versus having a narrative that you know people don't believe right. in and haven't signed up to
0: yeah it's definitely something i think like i haven't done enough of personally but it intrigues me and interests me enough i really want to learn more about it we actually had recently a new director join product and uh, going into trend analysis uh, i think is an area i definitely want to spend a little bit more time myself uh, learning about and seeing and understanding the different trends uh, in the market and in the world and how um, you have micro macro trends influencing one another because uh ultimately, I think if you can understand them better, you can start to see what's coming ahead better and uh, get ahead of the game at the rapid pace in which we move in this industry. Uh, having that extra bit of foresight, I think, can only be a big advantage. Cool. So I think we're running up on time as well, Adam. And uh, I know we chat before the show, so you know this question is coming. Uh, but I ask every guest that joins the show, And uh, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you've joined a new company and churn retention is not doing well. Uh, The CEO has come to you and said, uh, please, we need help. We need to turn this around, Uh, but we need results fast and we want to see a shift in 90 days. What would you want to do with those first 90 days at the company and how would you try and make a dent in
1: churn? Yeah, it's such a hard question because churn is one of those things that takes so long before you see the results. Um, but I would probably start at the beginning with the new cohorts and I would try to uh strip away as much as I could and and just get into the nitty-gritty with them of uh you know, what are they expecting versus what are we delivering? And then work really hard to (laughs) make sure that we're delivering on what they expect for that first cohort. I mean, I I know that it sounds so simple, but I think then a lot of the other answers would reveal themselves about process or product or people or whatever the root cause is. But I'd try to just get a real truth on for the newest cohorts coming in, what are the expectations that they have? And then start to think about, okay, well, what is it going to take for me over the next 90 days to deliver for that cohort
0: yeah i think ultimately that's where you have the biggest impact is really uh during that onboarding phase during that activation and uh, what you're alluding to as well i think is like that's um the fits between like marketing and product Uh, and you might have these expectations that your product from the outside is setting but they're not really delivering on once people are getting into it Uh, and interesting really just to try and understand like where that gap lies so you can either maybe close the gap in terms of how you're communicating and talking about your product uh, or really making sure that the product is delivering the value that the marketing is promising and people are coming to you for Uh, but it, it probably is one of the biggest areas early days in the startup as well because you want to sort of maybe make your product sound better than it is try and impress more people than you really should be in the early days and more often than not without realizing this can be really damaging because you're setting false expectations for your customers, and uh, ultimately not able to deliver. But I don't know if you had anything else on that uh, that you you think well, it's really important
1: at the early stage to focus there. I agree with you. I mean, but it's such a complex thing because the more you sell, the harder it gets to retain your customers, right? And and everybody wants to have a great sales and marketing motion that tells a big story and makes a big promise, and then you know you close deals at the highest possible price. Uh, but the reality is like when you're good at those things, you're, you're making the task of, uh, of retention just harder and harder. Um, so I think nobody really wants to slow down, but, uh, somehow I think you have to try to at least slow it down or, or make it seem like you're slowing it down to, to get into the the root cause. I mean, it's just so hard to know. Is it people, is it process, is it product? Is it, you know, something in in the selling motion that's broken? Um. So is it I think everything, you have to, all of is it everything, happened. you know, 10% of everything? Like if you've made a weighted score of which things are impl- causing it, and then you go interview people who churn and it's like, you get 20 different reasons. So, um, yeah. it's such a nuanced problem in, in that regard. Absolutely, and that's the whole
0: thesis of the show as well. But anyway, uh, it looks like we've run up on time today, Adam. It's been a pleasure having a chat with you. uh Before we go, is any sort of final thing you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, anything? Anything they should be aware of, or how can they keep up to speed with what you're working on?
1: Best way to stay in touch with me is probably LinkedIn. It's just uh, slash Adam Schoenfeld. Um, I also have a podcast where I interview entrepreneurs in Seattle. It's called the Built-in Seattle Podcast. If you search Built-in Seattle with Adam Schoenfeld in your podcast app, you'll find it. So those are probably the best two ways. You can email me adam at drift.com as well if you want to get in touch. Very
0: cool. we will definitely drop a couple of those things in the show notes. Uh, So if you visit the site, you'll be able to find them there too. But uh, thanks a lot for joining the show. It's been a pleasure chatting today and I wish you now best of luck going forward. Thanks, Andrew.